part of Ashgate's ambition is to change the conversation about death and dying and to enable conversations to happen in daylight, in general conversation about death and dying. We're all going to die. It's not something that any of us can avoid. And actually for us, I think, and for me, this the power of seeing 2,000 people all dressed in pink and sparkly and lights on and all sorts of things walking through North Chesterfield and parts of North Derbyshire just that light, literally the symbolism of that light in the dark is immensely powerful. Welcome to season four of the Charity CEO podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders, bringing you inspirational and meaningful conversations with leaders who are driving change in the nonprofit space. I'm truly delighted and humbled that the show has been named in the Charity Times Top 10 Charity Podcast for 2022. Thank you all for that incredible endorsement. I'm Divya O'Connor, and here's the show. Barbara Ann Walker is the Chief Executive of Ashgate Hospice. Ashgate Hospice is a specialist hospice, providing palliative and end-of-life care for the community of North Derbyshire. Their vision is for people with a life-limiting illness to be able to live well and have a good death. Less than 30% of hospice funding comes from the NHS, and yet the hospices provide a vital service within the UK healthcare system. Barbara Ann and her team at Ashgate Hospice have been prolific in engaging the community, campaigning, and raising awareness for hospice funding, both locally as well as on the national stage. Barbara Ann is emphatic about the need to change the conversation about death and dying. We talk about Ashgate Hospice's own podcast, The Life and Death Podcast, which explores frank and honest conversations about death and what dying well really means. Barbara Ann shares her thoughts on the importance of visible leadership and her role as a leader in creating a learning culture. She also shares some practical learnings gained from working through the pandemic. Here's the conversation. Hi, Barbara Ann. Welcome and thank you for joining us on season four of the Charity CEO podcast. It's very lovely to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, it's fantastic. really wonderful to be invited. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for saying so. And lovely to have you on. Uh, so being a fan of the podcast then, Barbara Ann, you will be familiar with the icebreaker format. And I have five questions. So if you're ready, we can kick off. For sure. Question one. What are three words that your team would use to describe you at your best? Oh, at my best? <laughs> Now, I'm a Calvinist, Davia, so I have real problem with describing anything about me at my best. <laughs> um, I think probably curious, passionate, and I'm going to say impatient. And I mean that in both, I mean, it, it, it is both good and bad in as much as it's that sense of we, ju- we have to keep moving. We don't, you know, we have things we have to do. Let's get on with it. So, yes, I would, I think that's probably, they might give you something completely different. But. <laughs> I love it. Um, and question two then is, what would you say is your professional superpower? Oh, I'm going to go back to the first thing I think my team would say about me, which is curious. Um, but I might embroider that a little and say intentional curiosity because it isn't enough just to do the why are you doing that or could we do it differently there has to be some there's no point in that really there has to be some action behind it so curiosity has I think in it things like 
courage and interest and creativity, when you become intentional about it, then it has to be about, okay, what happens if we try that? So let's try it and see what happens. Um, you know, what? why do we do it that way? What would happen if we did it a different way? Um, because that's how you start to move down and move through the journey of kind of changing and improving that constant not quite good enough. Come on, can, could we do it better? That's in, for me is very much in curiosity. Um, I mean, I do sometimes drive. I know my team nuts and people at work at Ashgate nuts because I do quite often do the. Can we just go back a step? Why would we? And like, could we just understand? And could somebody go and look at that and come back? Um, but I actually think we, the more complacent you are, Michael West talks about the idea of being: Are you a comfort seeker? or a problem sensor, and I am by nature a problem sensor. And I think it's, yeah, that, that's how you improve. That's how organisations get better. And it's how the voluntary sector came into being, because people said, what would happen if we did this in response to a problem? So, yeah, I'm kind of constantly curious. I love that, being intentionally curious and being a problem sensor. Two fantastic superpowers there, barbara So, the next question, what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, curling up on the sofa with a book and a box of chocolates. And no, I, actually, my guilty pleasure is sometimes not leaving the house for an entire weekend. I can very easily, intentionally you know, finish work on a Friday night and just never leave the house and not have to be on kind of phone calls with friends, not have to engage with people, not have to see people. Um, yeah, and I, I kind of, it's not, I don't have guilty is the right word, but I'm conscious that it's something that only some people would relate to. <laughs> Luckily, I have a husband who's happy to go out and do the shopping. <laughs> Question four, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world right now, what would that be? It would have to be high quality end of life care with provided by organisations with sustainable funding. Absolutely have to be. Including Ashgate, of course. And our final icebreaker question. If you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? I'm not just saying this because I'm a Scot. Uh, it would have to be Nicola Sturgeon. And my question would be how she found the energy and the resilience to turn up every day for what, it might, what two years pretty much at those press conferences every day. Do you know what I mean? With the full face on, the, the dressed, I mean, you know, the whole thing. And kind of the leadership that she, whatever your stripe of politics, I think the leadership that she showed through that. And I'd want to understand what she drew from in order to do that. Because there have been many days for me through the last couple of years where I have been really thankful that I've been working from home and I haven't had to put on shoes and, you know, kind of properly get dressed and go out and engage with people. So, yeah, I would love to understand more about what whale she drew on in order to be able to do that, because I thought it was an astounding achievement. Mm. So, barbara you are the CEO of Ashgate Hospice. Let's start off by talking about your organisation and its vision and mission. So Ashgate is a specialist hospice. We provide palliative and end-of-life care for the community of North Derbyshire. 
Um, our vision is for people with a life-limiting illness to be able to live well. It's not just about dying. It's about living more than it is about dying. So for them to be able to live well and to have a good death and for their loved ones to be well supported and comforted too. So we're not just about our patients, we're also about their families, their friends, their loved ones. Um, we have a 21-bed inpatient unit and we also have, a, in effect, a full suite of community services. So we have clinical nurse specialists and support workers, physios, occupational therapists, um, day services, uh, lymphedema team. We have a full medical team. Um, and we also have a supportive care service. So we work, we have social workers, therapists. We provide, um, over the last couple of years through the pandemic, we've been providing specialist, um, in effect, post-trauma support for our local acute hospital and their staff um, in light of everything that they were having to deal with. Um, so we have about 340 staff and best part of 700 volunteers. So it's a big operation for a kind of local charity. We've been around since 1988 was when the, the doors first opened. And actually, we were started by a group of volunteers um, at that time in order to get end of life, specialist end of life care people in North Derbyshire had to go to Sheffield. And they had the vision of wanting to have somewhere local for local people to go so that people didn't have to travel very far. Um, and they raised at that time over a million pounds just to open the doors of the hospice. Um, and some of them are still involved. We've got um, one of our founding patron um, is still around and also um, a couple of volunteers who were on that original fundraising group are still volunteering for us. Wow, that's such amazing advocacy and support when you have some of the original founding volunteers uh, still supporting. Uh, but tell us a bit more about the funding model then for the hospice. I know that what a lot of people don't actually realise is that less than 30% of your funding is via the NHS or indeed from the government. But what are some of the challenges of having one foot in the NHS whilst also then being a charity and needing to fundraise to provide your essential services? Yes. Yes, we're effectively in the healthcare system, but not of the healthcare system. And it's classic model. You know, most charitable hospices across the country have less than 30% of their funding provided by the NHS, even though we are in effect providing services, healthcare services that should be provided and are required to be provided by the NHS. So, yes, we are. So, our budget last year. Our expenditure budget last year was 11 something, 11.8 million, something like that. And less than 3 million of that was funded by the NHS. So we cared for 1,900 people last year in our clinical services and almost 300 people in our supportive care services. So over 2,000 people. And as I say, yes, less than three million pounds from the NHS. The rest of that money comes from our fundraising work and our retail. So we have 15 shops and three coffee shops. I hope I got that right. Across North Derbyshire who generate about three million pounds a year. And the, the, the shops are wonderful. Um, they really are our ambassadors in the community. And we know that people come into our shops because they either perhaps have a connection to the hospice or they perhaps are they want more information about the hospice. They also go in just because the shops are very good. And actually, they don't look like tra traditional charity shops. They don't, they don't smell of dampness. 
for a start. And they're colourful and they're bright. There is a real, I think, public perception of what a charity shop looks like. And it actually mostly isn't the reality anymore. It certainly isn't the reality for ours. The rest of our income is generated by fundraising. And it's kind of classic voluntary sector stuff. So it's mixture of trusts and grants. We have some really big events. We have an event once a year called Sparkle Walk. Um, We're doing it again this year in person um, where we had run it virtually for a couple of years. And that's a really wonderful event. It's a huge fundraising event for us. It brings in about a quarter of a million pounds. And in previous years prior to the pandemic, and I I I hope again this year, it's 2,000 people who come together, all dressed in pink and all sparkly, to celebrate generally somebody who they have lost. So people will have on the backs of their T-shirts, you know, photographs of their dad or their husband or their brother or their daughter or their friend. And they it's a sponsored walk in effect, but they walk through Chesterfield in the dark. And the, the, there's something for me about not just the income that raises, but the symbolism of that, because it's a pilgrimage for so many of those people. And part of Ashgate's ambition is to change the conversation about death and dying and to enable conversations to happen in daylight, in general conversation about death and dying. We're all going to die. It's not something that any of us can avoid. And actually for us, I think, and for me, the power of seeing 2,000 people all dressed in pink and sparkly and lights on and all sorts of things walking through North Chesterfield and parts of North Derbyshire, just that light, literally the symbolism of that light in the dark is immensely powerful. So we have those kind of events. We have a, um, a whole range of different events that raise funding, that raise money for us. And actually, I have to say, after 30 years in the charity sector, I have never worked for a charity that is so well loved and so well supported by its community. And that really showed up at the end of 2020. We had we weren't that long into what we became a rather extended pandemic and lockdown situation. And we have we'd been saying to the NHS for years that they don't give us enough funding. We are beginning to run out of money. The demand is too much. We cannot continue to do this anymore. And they were sort of, I think, they spent a lot of time going, yeah, 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 but you're a charity. You won't stop because they didn't really understand the concept of the liabilities and responsibilities of charities. We got to a point in the late summer of 2020 where we actually had to say to them, it is enough now. We are going to have to stop doing some of what we're doing. We're going to have to stop providing some of the services that we provide because we just do not have the money to do it. And we had to take the NHS commissioners on a long journey of learning what it meant to be a charity, because of course all they can think of is NHS, they work in the NHS, and do a lot of education with them in effect about what it meant to be a charity and what it means for us to be a charity and the value that we bring as well. Um, You know, like most hospices, we kind of pay for two thirds of the services that we provide, they get that for free in effect. But in order to back that up with the support of our wonderful marketing and communications team at the hospice, we launched a communications campaign, particularly locally, but also nationally, that was about raising awareness of the um, the insecurity of our funding situation, the implications of all of that, raising awareness of the fact that we're not 100% funded by the NHS. And we had a phenomenal response. 
There was something in there for me about rather than just going out to our staff and our volunteers and to our community and saying things are bad, we have a problem and here you need to understand that we may have to take certain actions. But also going behind that with an a call to action to say and here's something you can do to change that situation, here's something you can do to help. And our community and our staff and our volunteers responded with phenomenal support. I'm not sure our MPs have had quite ever so many letters about a particular situation. They suddenly became very interested in what we do. And it really helped. It has given us a level of security for the last couple of years that we did not have in 2020. And for me, it was very much, it was a an immensely stressful experience. I mean, really like, you know, talk about losing sleep. Um, but actually it turned out to be a really positive and heartwarming experience just to get that support from the community and to really understand what the care that we provide means to people. There are very few people in North Derbyshire who haven't been touched by Ashgate in some way or another. I'm really struck hearing you talk, Barbara Ann, by how well-loved Ashgate Hospice is by its community and how you really exist for the, the community as well. And also how you, being a locally focused uh, organisation, have still been able to get on the national stage and really raise the profile um, of your work and of the sector more broadly as well. And I, I particularly love how you talk about the Sparkle event and how it's so connected to the mission about celebrating somebody um, somebody who has died. Uh, and so it's all about you know living well and then celebrating the death for the families as well, who of course left behind. But if we go back to COVID times, uh, I know that Ashgate was one of the few hospices that accepted end-of-life COVID patients in your patient unit, uh, and you talked there a little bit about how it was such a difficult time. How are things right now, do you think, and, and how well equipped do you feel your organisation is to perhaps face into the next crisis, which is currently the cost of living crisis that we are all facing into? Yeah, I mean, it has been a really interesting experience, and I think I... I don't usually try and speak for everybody, but I would, I think, speak for everybody, Ashgate, to say, at least from my perspective, I think we all surprised ourselves with everything we could do. And we, you know, we did things that we asked. We were like in common with the NHS and other kind of social care and healthcare providers. We were asking our staff and our volunteers to put themselves at risk to care for people who were COVID positive, whether in the community or in an inpatient unit. And we were one of the few hospices that proactively took dying people from our local acute trust into the hospice, people with COVID um, who were dying, in order, which enabled them to have people with them. At their, so we had visitors all the way through the pandemic. We still do, partly because of things like practical stuff, like the design of the building, but also because our staff and our volunteers were hugely committed to making that possible. And it was hard for them. It was heartbreaking because so much of what we do and so much of palliative and end-of-life care is about the small things. It's about the touch on the arm or even the hug if somebody is really struggling. It's about going into somebody's bedroom and giving them a big smile, which is impossible to do, or, or, you know, certainly almost impossible to do when you're wearing a mask. So it's been really hard. And I think, so I th one of the things that we did last year was we did something called a learning history 
which is, I, I, this is huge learning for me in itself, but it's an, an actual model that is prescribed and it's, it's, I think it was devised by MIT that's about understanding and working and talking to people to enable them to identify how has it been for you and what have you learned and how are you going to take that into the future? So you're able to do that at an individual level. And we interviewed something like 70 people, staff and volunteers across the organization over the course of a number of months last year. And so it was about learning them learning and having a chance to just think, having what my husband would call a good listening to, about kind of what, how has it been for you? What have you learned? And that was was everybody. So people who had suddenly in March 2020 been sent home with their laptops and told not to come into the hospice, as well as the people who continue to work in the, the hospice building itself. And our retail staff, our fundraising staff, all of them, and it tells a story. I mean, it's like a 90-page document, but it's really rich information. It tells a story about all of the different perspectives from the people who were interviewed about how it was. And I think there's real learning in there about understanding that going forward, we're just beginning to have conversations with staff now about kind of hybrid working. So what does... You know, some people work really well at home and some people can be at home all the time. Some people are not able to be at home. If you work in a shop, you work in the inpatient unit estates, catering, that kind of thing, you can't be at home. You have to be where at your place of work. That's not an option that's generally available to you. Everybody else, people like me, are sort of somewhere in the middle. But actually, rather than prescribing a everybody come back to work or everybody stay where you are, There's a Myron's maxim that I love, which is that the process you use to get the future is the future you create. And actually, for me, beginning to go out and have individual conversations with teams and sometimes with individuals about what do you need in your future? What does your future need to look like? We create that future together. And that includes going and talking to people like nurses on the inpatient unit and medical staff and healthcare assistants and housekeepers who don't have the option of working from home. But it's equally important that we hear that conversation. So I think I think we are as ready as anybody else is for whatever might come to us. But actually, I think the, the way that we work now, which is very different, I think it's fair to say, to the, from the way that we worked a few years ago, which is very much about the conversation, the invitation to engage. We've the new strategy that we've got, for example, which includes some of this thinking, came from some hot groups that we did. It, it picked up lots of different intelligences, but one of the things that we did was we invited. It was an open invitation, and again, we had about sixty or seventy people who came and joined some hot groups to look at different ways in which we could do the future differently. And um, lots and lots of ideas from that that have been fed into lot the strategy. I think what makes us as ready as we can be is not so much the what we do as the how we do it. So in engaging with people, having those conversations with people, listening to people, we've had, you know, through the, the kind of two years of the, the pandemic to date, we've had a business continuity structure. So we've had daily meetings where it was necessary, reducing down to twice weekly or weekly 
which were about can we respond? How do we respond really fast to practical questions on the ground? You know, so the 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 shops were struggling about um, you know new regulations that were coming in about social distancing. Okay, what do we need to do? Who's doing it? Let's go and get it done. So the, there was a real operational emphasis, and we we can lift that up again. We can do that again. We've stepped it down, so we're ready to do all of that. But also there's something for me about just continuing to ask that question. It's a curiosity thing. What did we learn? How would we do it differently next time? And I have a phenomenal bunch of staff and volunteers who just do astonishing things, sometimes without even being asked. So, you know, I think we are absolutely ready for whatever the future brings, which doesn't mean it's not sometimes scary. And doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge and recognise sometimes that it's scary. I remember going to our inpatient unit in December when Omicron was really beginning to make itself felt. And we had again said that we were going to take COVID positive patients from Chesterfield Royal, which is our local acute hospital. And going to talk to staff about our thinking about that to get their perspective on it. And there were people who were really struggling with it because they just felt that they had got back to, even with masks and that kind of thing, a level of normality. And all of a sudden it felt like we were going, actually, you need to ramp it back up again. And there were some tears. There were some nurses in that meeting who were crying. But I went back in again the next morning and did a shift on the unit. And I was really struck by how they had just got their head around it because this is what they do. And I think the the challenge for all of our staff and particularly our clinical staff has been our best, right? even right now in what's this, um, May 2022, our best still looks very different to what it was two and a half years ago. And, and for them, a lot of what we, I've been trying to do is kind of change that thinking round to actually this is the best you can do under the circumstances. This is your best. It's just your best looks different right now by necessity to what it did two and a half years ago. But they are still doing astonishing things for the community that nobody else in, in you know, is doing. I love the maxim you quoted there, Barbara Ann, which is the process you use to create the future is the future that you get. So the focus is really on how you do things um, rather than necessarily the what. And I want to just delve into something else that you mentioned in the context of really creating this hybrid um, working environment and looking at, you know, the best today looks different to how it might have done pre-pandemic. How do you really cultivate a joined up culture and this one team ethos of everybody pulling together? I mean, do you have any tips or advice for other leaders? Because I do think a lot of organizations are, are grappling with that right now. Yeah, and I grapple with it too. It has been hard, I think, particularly over the last couple of years. We have something that we call for shorthand, I guess, and but also for visibility, one Ashgate. And I think that's one of the really important things is to name it. I'll go back to being intentional. If that's what you want to do, then you have to name it. If people don't know where they're going, then they can't possibly come on the same journey as you. It's hard when the, you know, when the organization is so disparate and continues to be disparate and we're moving into some a future that we don't yet know what it looks like, really. Um, I think there's something really important for me about, well, there's a number of different things. One is visible leadership. And, you know, pre-pandemic, that was very much physically visible. It's now much more about emails and being online on screen and that kind of thing. 
there's something for me about if you, as chief exec of Ashgate, I know the kind of culture that I want to create. And therefore, I need to also live that culture and be seen to live that culture. And sometimes we're necessary to face up when I don't get it right. Um, because that's part of the culture as well. If we want a learning culture, then I have to model that too. There's something for me as well about seeding leadership everywhere. That kind of idea, that recognition, that reality, I think, that wh whoever you are, whether you're a volunteer who works one afternoon in a shop or whether you're a full-time chief exec, you can be and you are a potential leader in the organization and you're all driving towards that same place, that same vision, that same destination. So we've done things like we've got a, a program that we call Leading Together. We bring together a group of people from across the organization. The f we've done it twice. The first cohort um, were by invitation because we just wanted to start it. The second cohort, we invited applications and we had a real mix in the group, um, as we did in the previous group, that ranged from housekeepers, nurses, healthcare assistants, people who work in retail, people who work in HR, people who work in fundraising, from all across the organisation, not managers, but below that level in terms of the hierarchy. And it's a real chance to, it's not a come and sit in a classroom and we'll do some PowerPoints of what leadership models look like. It's a real chance to understand, you know, that concept that leadership is nothing to do with you and all about you at the same time. It's that notion of having some space to think about what does your leadership look like? What's the influence that you have in the organization? But also, it's not just about the organization. I'm very much of the, I really absolutely believe because I've seen it. If you give people the chance to develop, they will surprise themselves. And actually, whatever they do in that space will bring something powerful to the organization. Now, some of them will eventually move on precisely because you enabled them to understand and to see what their potential might be. But actually, that's okay because they go and do that somewhere else. And that's wonderful in itself. So I think you have to, you know, that idea of kind of if leadership and culture is about doing something, you know, starting somewhere and following it everywhere, I think. If you're going to do something like one Ashgate, you have to do it in lots of different ways. And it can't be about the kind of communicating of it is the least of it in lots of ways. It has to be about going out and having conversations and modeling it and talking about it. And the reason that I know it has had some traction at the hospice is because we sometimes will get emails or, or somebody, a member of staff or a volunteer will raise something and they will say, it's not very one Ashgate. And, and actually, although that's usually a problem that needs to be fixed, actually, I think that's really positive that they're saying that and pointing that out because it tells me they have a commitment to it. They see something that's out of line with our culture. So actually, although it's usually something that needs fixed, I think that's really positive. So many pearls of wisdom there, Barbara, and I'm just going to briefly summarize uh, the key points. I, I love the idea of naming the destination. Um, and so One Ashgate does that so powerfully, as you've just described, having visible leadership, but also really you know, driving home the importance of it's not just about communication, it's actually about modeling and living that, which was your next point about being seen to live the culture and, uh, of course, seeding leadership everywhere and developing future leaders. 
But just coming back to something that you talked about a little earlier on in terms of the organization or hospices in, in more broadly being in the healthcare system, but not of the healthcare system. I'm curious to know your thoughts around what else you would like to see from government right now. Well, I mean, that is most fundamental, more funding for hospices and end-of-life care generally. I think that the Health and, Health and Care Act 2022, the most recent one that's just kind of set up um, the new NHS structure and the ICSs, has for the first time ever in it a requirement on the NHS to provide end-of-life and palliative care. It's it's worded in such a way that they have to provide palliative and end-of-life care where people need it. Now, I think that's an odd sentence because everybody needs it everywhere, but that notwithstanding. That's the first time the NHS has ever formally been required to provide end-of-life care. Cradle to the grave, yeah. And don't misunderstand me. There, I don't think there's anywhere in the country that the NHS does not provide palliative and end-of-life care. I think there's a difference between often tangibly be between what the NHS is able to do, given the culture of the NHS, given the top-down kind of nature of that leadership and the funding challenges. There's a tangible difference between that and what generally hospices provide, partly because of the independence of being a charity, of the ability to fundraise, of the just the kind of charity experience that the NHS brings and the that hospices bring rather. And the the fact that we're grounded in the charity ethos of changing the world, of doing something that is about social change, of seeing a need and doing something about it, whether it's the volunteers that set up Ashgate in the first place or you know whatever we have there are millions of examples of it across the country over the years it's the, it's the the joy of the the charity sector i think the nhs and the government are still on a journey and they probably don't want to do it but they do have to go on that journey i think to understand what charities bring and why the the hospice charity model is one of value to avoid the instinct to say, well, we'll just take it all into the NHS. But actually, the NHS is full of intelligent, smart people. Government is full of intelligent, smart people. It doesn't take a lot. You just have to go on the journey and do the learning. It doesn't take a lot to understand and work with a multiplicity of providers, including charities. You know, if I can understand, if Ashgate can work with the, with the NHS and understand the NHS, which has to be one of the most complicated structures and complicated political organisations in the world, actually it's not beyond the ability of the NHS to understand and value and work with charities as providers. But there is a need, to be blunt, just to provide more funding to do what we do, because we are doing a lot of what the NHS cannot or does not and probably would not be able to do. I'd like to switch lanes slightly now, Barbara, and, and talk about one of my favourite topics, uh, which is podcasting. And as everyone probably knows, I love the medium of podcasting, and I think it's a great channel with which to deeply engage with supporters. And I think there is real merit actually in charities having their own podcast to talk to audiences to really propagate the charity ethos that you mentioned, which is all about changing lives and changing the world. So I was thrilled to find out that Ashgate has its own podcast. 
tell us about the Life and Death podcast. Indeed, we do. We're into series three now. It's wonderful. I would say that I am biased, but I do think it is genuinely interesting. It was an idea, again, of our marketing and communications team. They've done a huge amount of work over the last couple of years. And we wanted, it goes back to this thing about we wanted to change the conversation we wanted to there was a sense of why wouldn't we take a step into the national onto the national stage why would we not we have a story to tell we have experience that is valuable in the same way as anybody else does and it's hosted by Stephen Rumford who's our senior physiotherapist and who is an absolute um, passionate advocate for palliative and end-of-life care first season was um, I was a guest on it <laughs> that was my only previous podcast experience and we've had a range of different guests the current series I think is really exciting because we've gone wider so the first interview was with um, a, a lady called Kimberly whose husband that we cared for just talking about so um, her husband died about 15 months ago and just talking about her experience of the last 15 months of being a, now a single mother in effect with with um, with children but we've we, we're also interviewing authors um, and people who are on the kind of national stage um, to talk about their experiences their insights that kind of thing so the most recent episode um, we've interviewed Stephen interviewed Seamus Mahoney who's a gastroenterologist um, who's recently retired who wrote a wonderful about death and dying that I actually read before I, I started at Ashgate. But just some really interesting guests. It, it's really about, a bit like this podcast, it's about raising awareness of things that happen, of, of conversations that are going on, of people, what they're doing, how they are living their lives, what their insights are, their reflections are on living and dying which is why it's called the Life and Death podcast. Um, and it's a really, it's about having frank and honest conversations about, about exactly that. What does it mean to live well and to die well? How do we do that? How is our society doing that? How well are we doing that? What else do we need to do? I think it's a really brave thing to do. I think it's, it's and, and for some of the guests who come on, some of them have been immensely powerful conversations. And we had, for example, in the last season, we had Catherine Mannix, who is a, an end-of-life palliative care consultant. Yeah, we've had some really interesting guests and yeah, third season. So third time lucky, we'll see. We're not quite as your fourth season, so we're a bit behind you, but we'll catch up. Well, I'm <laughs> sure you will get there. And so listeners, if you work in the hospice sector uh, or more broadly have been touched by loss uh, and want to find out more insights, I would strongly encourage you to listen to the Life and Death podcast. But Barbara, tell us now a bit more of your personal story in terms of your career path. What has led you to where you are today? Sure. So I'm, as you can tell from the accent, I'm Scottish. Um, I was born in Glasgow and um, lived in Glasgow until I was in my early 30s. I was the first member of my family, my wider family, to go to university. So I was brought up in a fairly working class family um, with one brother. My mum and dad had always volunteered, although in those days, that would have been early sort of 60s and 70s, it wasn't really called that. There wasn't the same infrastructure behind it and the kind of awareness of it, I think, that there is now. But they'd always volunteered for local groups and for the, their local church. And my mum in particular was very involved in kind of peace and justice work when I was a child. So it was kind of 
that notion that that's what you do, that volunteering is something normal, if you like, something that is good to do, that people do, was very much kind of just in me, I guess. And I, as I say, I was the first person to go to university. I have a degree in psychology from Glasgow University. And that's only because a teacher said, Mr. Balsilli, said, um, I think you should look at going to university. And in those days, of course, you could go, you know, I had no, we had no money. You went to university on a full grant, which is what made it possible. And and that was really was life changing. I mean, without that, I wouldn't be here really genuinely. And I know you even more than I am are a passionate advocate of the power, for the power of education um, and the impact that, that the work that you, that you, that somebody like you do in your organisation does, Divya, is just phenomenal. My first paid role in the voluntary sector was um, working for the Church of Scotland, of all things, um, as a rehab worker in a drug unit. And I will say now that I was terrible at it. I lasted about nine months. I just am not built for that kind of work. And it's why I have so much admiration for particularly nurses and healthcare assistants. My closest friend is a carer. That's what she does. And she will kind of, you know, downplay the work that she does in comparison to mine. And actually, my job's easy in comparison to hers. So yes, I did that for about nine months. I was terrible at it. And then I worked in kind of drugs projects in Glasgow um, and um, sexual health for a while. And then in my late 20s, I went to work for an organisation that doesn't exist anymore, but was called Scottish AIDS Monitor. And so that would have been probably the mid 80s, um, mid to late 80s. And that was really eye opening for me. So at that point, I knew that I wanted to work in the voluntary sector. Definitely. There was, you know, that, that was kind of my path with no sense of what that might mean. But working in HIV and AIDS at that time was such a powerful lesson in the power of a community and a community rallying round because nobody else would and working to support people who were going through terrible terrible things in terms of the and it, it's about their it was about their experience of their sexuality of society's perception of their sexuality about society's perception as to whether their love was, had the same value as the love of heterosexual people, just at its most basic. And people who were dying without their family knowing that they were gay or that they had HIV. And just that sense of just watching how the community of the LGBT community just rallied round because nobody else would do it. The, I mean, Scottish AIDS Monitor existed, like Terence Higgins Trust, because that community did it for themselves because nobody else would. And it was a really powerful learning experience for me about just the, the it, it goes back to that thing. It's why I'm so passionate about it, about why the charities, why charities exist, why the charity sector, the voluntary sector is here in the first place. Um, and to see the power of that. And you can still see, I would say, I would say the impact of that on some, at least, for example, of what the NHS does now and how services are designed. So the what used to be called 20 odd years ago, patient and public involvement, the the, the con continual push, and we still don't do it well enough, but the continual push to hear the voice of the patient, the service user in designing services and how services are delivered and how 
charities spend their money, all of that kind of thing, I would argue came from the way that the HIV and AIDS sector fought, what they fought for, what they insisted on, what they stood their ground on. You can see the influence of that on the patient, what you could call, I guess, the patient and service user movement. That's not a very kind of pretty way of describing it, but I do think you can see the impact of that today. So that was a hugely powerful um, three or four years for me. It really was. And then I fell in love with an Englishman and I moved temporarily to London. I worked for the Family Planning Association as training manager for a while. And then we moved to Derbyshire, which is where we've been ever since. And I worked for, I went into infrastructure in the voluntary sector for, for about a decade. So I worked for a council for voluntary service. Actually here, I've come back to Chesterfield, which is where I started in Derbyshire. Um, and again, that was really useful because that was very much about supporting trustees. So it started to open my eyes and kind of raise a level of awareness for me about what trustees actually did because I'd never been a trustee at that point. And I worked in Nottingham for an organisation, again, supporting networks of patients and service users and self-help and mutual aid networks. Did a few years with Macmillan Cancer Support as their daily living services manager. So kind of social workers, palliative care social workers, counselling, that kind of thing. And during that time, I also became an NHS non-executive. So I had the tremendous privilege and huge challenge, which I never really felt I lived up to, to be honest, but I kept trying, of being a non-executive director with um, Derbyshire Community Health Services, which is the local Derbyshire NHS Trust providing district nurses, you know, everything essentially that that a, a, a non-acute service provides, maternity services, all of that kind of thing. But they're a phenomenal organisation with an amazing chief executive called Tracy Allen, who was a huge inspiration to me. And I learned so much from my years with DCHS about the role of leadership in culture, about how, although I was a non-exec rather than a trustee and the roles are different, there are many similarities. And it was very much about how governance can contribute to and support and drive a learning culture, an improvement culture, a good leadership. So how to be, and that, that, that has played out into my work with, as a chief exec, with my own board of trustees. And then I went to the Red Cross um, and had a fabulous five years with the Red Cross. Absolutely loved it, really, as a, an operations director, covering a whole range of services. So the learning was phenomenal from kind of ambulance services through to community first aid education services and everything in between. Working with, again, a really strong leadership team um, and really learned there, I think, the, the ability to switch very quickly from one thing to another. And to be able to go from the really big stuff to the really kind of detailed operational stuff very quickly. I moved on from the Red Cross when they restructured in 2016, 2017. I took redundancy, um, had a kind of 18 months at home, which is the first time I've ever done that. I did a bit of work for my husband, but, you know, as a good working class Calvinist, that felt very, very dodgy. Just that I'm not used to kind of not working. And I was I was very, very lucky to be able to, to kind of have that space. Um, and then I got the job at Ashgate. I, I was looking for, actively looking for a job and I got a phone call from um, a recruitment consultant um, who said, I think I've found the perfect job for 
for you and I, I yeah, I, I have loved this job from the moment I started preparing for the interview process. I have loved this job and I still do. There isn't a day I don't want to come to work. I mean, there are days I don't want to get out of bed, but that's a different issue. But there isn't a day when I think I don't want to come to work today. I just love this job. Wow. And looking back at that incredible leadership journey, Barbara Ann, what advice would you give to yourself on, on day one of first coming into a real leadership role? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I would, I, can I give them a whole, I'd want, what I'd want to do is give somebody, a huge, myself, a huge shoebox of advice. Go I for think, it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, actually, do you know, a really practical piece of advice I would give myself, which I did actually do, but it took me a couple of years to do it, is buy yourself a copy of It's Tough at the Top, one of your previous podcast guests, Deborah Alcott, Yes, Deb's shout out to, to you. This, I carry that book. I have given it to so many people and recommended it to so many others. I think there's something about you applied for the job. This is the job. You have to do it. You know, there are times where, in, you know, and it, it happened a couple of weeks ago in this job where I think I don't know what to do with this situation, about this situation. I don't know. I don't know if I am going to be able to get the organization through this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to fix this. Maybe I'm not the right person and maybe I'm not. But the reality is I applied for this job. Nobody invited me. Nobody said, oh, please come and be Ashgate's chief executive. I said, I really want to do this job and this is the job. And actually, if you are in that place... The thing to do is to talk to other people. It's okay to say to your team, I don't know what to do. Can we talk about it? Can we un get unpick some ideas? The other piece of advice I would give myself, which I didn't do until a few years ago, is get a coach. Get a coach. And even if you've got no money, you can often find somebody, even if it's a, an, a kind of a colleague who will do it for you for nothing or do it on a peer process. But actually having a coach gives me the space to, to think, to talk about how it is for me, to explore different options, to understand. One of the things my coach does for me, Leslie, which is really useful, is to give me frameworks. So when I said to her recently about the pandemic stuff, and I said, I just feel like we've gone back to where we were. And she pointed out, you never go back. It's a spiral. You're in a, you're, you're in a different place. You can't go back there. So you're not back where you were. You're just in a different place. So it's somebody who has that perspective and that willing, ability to reframe difficult challenges and also somebody who will push at you and say, actually, I think there's a, there are different ways of doing this or have you thought about this? Even if it's something you don't necessarily find comfortable to do, it's usually a good idea. So, yes, I, I talk to other people, find a coach. You cannot do it on your own, but you do have to do it. That's what I would say to myself. Yes, I think so many leaders sometimes, uh, particularly in the past couple of years, have come into situations and just feeling out of their depth and thinking, oh, my God, how do I navigate not just myself, but in the entire organization through whatever crisis the organization may be facing. And I think your practical advice there, Barbara, and particularly around talking to people, you know, getting support, uh, having a coach who can help reframe challenges uh, is all uh, really, really important. Uh, and of course, you know, buying Deborah Alcock-Tyler's book, It's Tough at the Top, oh, which yes, I definitely absolutely. have a copy of. <laughs> 
But you know, you can't, I'm a firm believer, you can't lead alone. You know, I could take a bottle of gin and go down and sit in a dark room for a while and try and come up with what I think Ashgate needs to do and what it needs to look like. But it wouldn't be nearly as good as the answer that I would get from going out and talking to Ashgate's people and indeed our local community and stakeholders and saying, what do you think? What do you think Ashgate should do? And, you know, what we've had over the last couple of years absolutely shows the value of that. And there's something in there I think about. I'm a great fan of Margaret Wheatley. And I love her um, whole kind of approach to leadership. And one of the things she talks about, which I think is really important, is having more faith in your people than they do in themselves. So putting people into a room and saying, actually, I do think you have the answer. We just need to find it. Um, I think is really is a really powerful and it goes back to that, you know, the future you get is the future you're creating. It's it goes back to all of that. Mm, absolutely. And I think there's something also there about getting trustee boards to see the broader picture, because oftentimes there is so much place on the shoulders of the chief executive as the single individual person to deliver everything. Um, and trustee boards, by their very nature, are slightly uh, a few steps away from what's happening on the ground and how we can help trustees really see, really, you know, straddle that bridge uh, so that they're able to do their you know, very critical duties of governance and oversight, but also in a way that supports the executive team, particularly through challenging times. Absolutely. And one of the the things that I learned from my NHS non-exec work was the value of what we, in, in, in the Ashgate context, of trustee development, of spending time, them spending time to develop their own skills and to develop their understanding of what leadership looks like for our board of trustees at Ashgate and what governance looks like and therefore what do we and what do I as a chief exec need to give them and provide them to enable them to do that governance role well. But governance and leadership is a skill in its own right and they need time to develop that. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Barbara. And it's been so lovely speaking with you. And in closing now, do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share? What is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? Oh, might need a bit of time to think about that. Um, Actually, that being a charity chief executive is a really, sometimes a really, really hard, and it is a lonely job in the way that, in, in many ways. But it's also an immensely rewarding role. And I am very busy. There's no getting away from that. But actually, and I suppose this is more for my staff and my volunteers, I'm no busier than any of them. I'm just differently busy. And I have, you know, Ashgate is a system and I have a job to do within that system and so do they. And the hospice would fall over if any of those pieces didn't work. So I think the, the, sometimes the kind of chief exec title comes with a bit of a, oh, it's the chief exec. I'm just an ordinary person who happens to be lucky enough to be in this job. But my work is no more important than that of one of our nurses or one of our housekeepers. It's just different. I love that frame that you put around that, that, you know, we're all part of a system uh, and we are just one cog in the wheel, uh, except have the title of chief executive. And arguably, I'd be missed. It would take them a lot longer to miss me than it would to miss a nurse in our community team. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, on that note then, Barbara, and thank you so much for, for sharing all of your wisdom uh, and for being a guest on the show. 
It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Divya. Barbara Ann Walker's brand of leadership is so inspiring. I came away from our conversation feeling energized and with so many takeaways. You can't be a leader without followers, and you certainly can't lead alone. And as a leader, it is important to demonstrate that you have more faith in your people than they sometimes have in themselves. As Barbara Ann says, being a charity chief executive can be a hard and lonely job, but it is also immensely rewarding. I love how she talked about the role of being CEO of Ashgate Hospice as just one piece in a bigger system and as no more or less important than one of the nurses. Just different. And whether we are leaders or followers, we are all just people striving to do our best. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Charity CEO Podcast, a show that thanks to you, our listeners, has repeatedly reached the number one spot in Apple's non-profit podcast category. If you found this conversation valuable, please share or tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram and make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you're feeling inspired or uplifted by what you have just heard, please share the joy and leave us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com for full show details, information on previous season episodes and to submit ideas for future guests. In order to balance my personal and professional commitments, the show will now come to you once a month instead of fortnightly. But I assure you, it will be worth the wait. Thank you for listening.